These hymns reflect the words of the faithful, the words of the redeemed, the words of the regenerate, those who have your life, and see in Christ everything that is precious to our souls. Stumbling and failing as though we may be, Christ, you are the one we long to honor and please and, and ultimately to be with forever in your presence. And we're reminded in these songs, particularly the last, that our salvation was not easily obtained. It was not cheap, but it was paid for by your own blood, by the cost of the suffering of the eternal Son of God. And therefore, it is all the more precious. It's not like silver or gold that we've been redeemed with, but we've been redeemed with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so as we spend these next few weeks considering your cross, our Lord, would you magnify your glory, make to us even sweeter our redemption. And for those who yet might be blind to you and not yet and have not yet tasted of your kindness and your redeeming grace, that it might be at this time that you draw them to the Son, our Father, to know life indeed. So these things we commit to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew 27. And before I start, let me remind you, uh, I think Shirley gave me a note to say that, uh, to remind you that we have resurrection breakfast next Sunday, and so no... Sunday school, there's no FOF, our normal activities. We'll just gather together in the morning for breakfast, and then, uh, and then we'll come and worship God together in song and, and the Word. That said, go ahead and open up your Bibles, as I mentioned, to Matthew chapter 27, verses 32 through 38. Matthew 27, verses 32 through 38. And we enter in now to Matthew's final account of the crucifixion of Christ, the crucifixion of Jesus. The account of the trial, the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is actually extensively recorded in all of the four Gospels. Each Gospel writer devotes a significant amount of space in their Gospel to unfold these events for us, for us to consider. And the reason is, is because it's the climactic point of Jesus' life. His birth, His life, His miracles... Everything else recorded for us was moving towards this final end that he would offer himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. In fact, in Matthew 1.21, he said that's why he came to forgive his people of his sins. At the beginning of the Gospel of John, he is heralded as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was his mission. That was his mission, ultimately, was to provide redemption for his people. And at the center of that message then of his redemption is the cross. It's his suffering. It's his being lifted up in the words of John that all who look on him might be saved. It is the message of the atonement for our sin. Of course, when the proclamation went out, and as we read through the Gospel of Acts, we'll see that the resurrection is the capstone of that. It was really the resurrection of Jesus Christ who was crucified, proclaimed that, declared Him to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world for all who trust in Him. But at the center of that, before the proclamation of the resurrection, 
there has to be the reality of his death. And it was death by a cross. And that is central then to the message of the gospel, to the Christian message of salvation in Christ alone. The resurrection, while again central to the proclamation of the apostles and our proclamation, is essentially focusing on the victory of Christ over sin. That he has defeated death, that his sacrifice is completed, that there's Nothing left to pay for the satisfaction of God against the sin of his people. It affirms all of the promises of God that in Christ Jesus they are yes and amen. It is the glory of his ascension the resurrection points to. Because he who raised from the grave would be raised from the earth. As we read this morning back to the right hand of the Father. The resurrection reminds us as well of his return in glory. That he will establish his kingdom on the earth, that justice will finally be met for the sin and the injustices of men, that the enemies of God will one day be all silenced, and it's only the glories of God and the praises of God that will fill the new heavens and the new earth. But before all of that, there is the cross. And the cross draws our attention not to the glory, the end of the gospel, but rather to the foundation of how God is able to extend these good gifts to His people, and it is through the shame and the suffering of the Son for our sin. The cross then causes us to dwell on the sinless and eternal and glorious Son of God in flesh, suffering what Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, the full force of the power of darkness. The full force of the power of darkness against Him who is the light of the world. Even more, it shows us and makes us consider the Father's laying upon His own Son, His own beloved Son, His own eternal Son, the shame and the reproach for our sin, for our transgressions, for our disobedience. Now, the instrument of the cross and the whole ordeal or the event of the crucifixion While central to the Christian message was certainly nothing new, it was certainly as a means of death, nothing that was unfamiliar to the hearers of the first century. Traced back to the Persians, most likely, it originally took the form of possibly being impaled on a great piece of wood and then lifted up from the earth, a gruesome way to die. It was later improved upon, if you will, by the Greeks and then later adopted by the Romans. It was an instrument then of great shame. It was an instrument of great suffering. So much so that if you were to go back in Greek literature, there really isn't a whole lot that's said about it. It was one of those things that was really too shameful even to speak about in detail. The Romans took it over from the Greeks and in some ways popularized it more. Oh, there were certainly many crucifixions and mass crucifixions, even in numbers over in the thousands beforehand. But it is with the Romans that it primarily took on a form of common punishment. Common punishment against a variety of crimes. And it was for Roman citizens something that they were not even allowed to participate in. Because of its shame, because of the suffering and the reproach that it brought with it. 
And because of this same shame and suffering, the message of the cross that the church took into the world was an offensive message. It was a message that was designed not only to shock, but in a way that would bring the disdain of the unbelieving in that, the world at that time. And it was offensive because it reveals the full depth of our sin. The one who was sacrificed there reminds us that there is no other way for our sin to be atoned for. No other way for us to be reconciled to God. It's offensive as well because the idea of an eternal and all-powerful and all-glorious God enduring such humiliation is completely incongruous with fallen man's conception of God. Even ability to conceive of a God like that on their own. As a matter of fact, this is dramatically portrayed in an ancient and infamous graffiti from the second century at a place in Rome in which a man stands before this figure with one of his arms raised in an act of worship and adoration. And the figure that he is raising his hands to is in fact the figure of a man with the head of a donkey hanging on the cross. And the inscription below this graffiti says this, Alexamonus worships his God. He worships his God. It's an open mockery of the Christian proclamation of the crucifixion of Christ. The idea of a crucified God was and is both absurd and contemptible to the fallen mind. And yet it is that chosen means of God before the foundation of the world by which he would provide salvation and the redemption of sin of his people. It is to the world a point of derision, but it is to God a display of his glory. It is a display of the glory of salvation and the glory even of his son. Now Paul picks up on the shame of this message. You don't have to turn there, I'll read it. But in 1 Corinthians 1, 18, he says this, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. In verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks Search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. It was a foolish message. It was a despised message. It was one that was known would bring the ridicule of the world. As a matter of fact, one even suggested here in Corinthians that maybe in part of why the Corinthians emphasized so much the ecstatic gifts was because that was an easier proclamation than the shame of the gospel. We see that kind of thing now where there's a shame in the Christ crucified and all of its implications. It's easier to emphasize other aspects of the gospel about the love of God, which is certainly true, the grace of God, but all of those things come first through a bloody cross. The term for foolishness that Paul uses communicates the idea of what is contemptible and reprehensible. 
One even uses, or gives this translation, that it is madness. And that was how the Christian faith was viewed in large part because of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ who was claimed to be God. An ancient historian, Suetonius, writing about Nero, said the Christian faith, he described in this way, a new and pernicious superstition. A new and pernicious superstition. Augustine records a conversation of an unbelieving husband who's really giving counsel or, or receiving counsel on how to persuade his Christian wife of changing her faith. And he, and he says this, the unbelieving husband does, let her continue as she pleases, persisting in her vain delusions and lamenting in song a God who died in delusions, who was condemned by judges, whose verdict was just and executed in the prime of life by the worst of deaths, a death bound with iron. It was foolish. It was an offensive message. Martin Hengel, a writer who wrote a well-read work on the crucifixion, says this, and he says it well. The heart of the Christian message, which Paul described as the word of the cross, ran counter not only to Roman political thinking, but to the whole ethos of religion in ancient times, and in particular to the ideas of God held by educated people. Right? That's not a whole lot different again than today, is it? In academia, if you proclaim faith in a crucified Christ, you're ridiculed, you're thought foolish, stupid, uneducated ignorant. It was no different for them as well, and in some ways even more so because they didn't have 2,000 years of church history at least to appeal to. Now the reason for this abhorrence and cringing at the idea of a crucified God is understandable at some level. Again, because the ancient world was familiar with it as a means of punishment and as an instrument of great shame and dishonor. In fact, Josephus, you're familiar with that name, describes it as the most wretched of deaths. The most wretched of deaths. A writer from the 3rd century, a little later, describes it in this way. Speaking of the justness of criminals who are only to expect the, the right punishment of crucifixion for their crimes. He says this, they're punished with limbs outstretched. They see the stake as their fate. They are fastened and nailed to it in the most bitter torment, evil food for birds of prey and grim pickings for dogs. As I mentioned, it was illegal for a Roman citizen to be crucified, although there were some exceptions. They were rare. That's why they were exceptions. The ancient Roman, well-known Roman Cicero said this, Let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts. In other words, they thought it even below the dignity of a Roman citizen to even consider, to even think about such a death as crucifixion. It was commonly a means of punishment against robbers, slaves, insurrectionists, and its cruelty was designed to prevent these crimes and produce in those who would see the crucified such a deep-seated fear of having to undergo the same kind of punishment that they would be moved to not disobey, to not commit crimes. It was meant to strike fear in their hearts. 
And to the Jews, it was particularly offensive, and it was associated with God's curse, with the curse of God. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 21, just listen, verse 22, really, he says this, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is cursed of God, so that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. The imagery throughout Jewish literature is that of being suspended on a tree. Suspended on a tree. Very often, when they're referring to it, often in Jewish literature, it is something that's done after death. In other words, post-mortem. So someone is killed, and then as a means of shaming them for their crime, they were impaled on a post and then lifted up for everyone to see. There are occasions where it was a means of execution, but again, by the Jews, but again, those were rare. And it's arguable whether any sects of the Jews ever actually condoned or practiced crucifixion as a means of death. But they did always, always understand that that form of exposure as a criminal was a picture of the curse of God. This is what Paul picks up on in Galatians 3.13 when he says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, pulling from Deuteronomy 21, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It was a curse. It was the lowest possible state of death. It was the greatest possible amount of suffering and shame that the ancient world and the fallen human mind could conceive of. It displayed nothing to the unbelieving mind other than rejection by God, a curse, evil, and just retribution for their crimes. Here then is the cost of our redemption. The cost of our redemption and the means of God's salvation. And it is then also the message of the church. We preach Christ crucified for sinners. Foolishness to the educated and to the elite, a stumbling block for the falsely religious and to all who are perishing, but to us it is the power of God unto salvation. So let us consider the cross of Christ. This morning we'll look at its shame and its suffering, which is both the means of our salvation as well as a call to faith and discipleship. Read with me, beginning in verse 32 of Matthew 27, and we'll read actually down to verse 44, but we're only going to cover to verse 38 this morning. Beginning in verse 32, Matthew 27. And as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. 
If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And in the same way, the chief priest also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He, he is the King of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Go back to verse 32 and let's consider briefly first the portrait of suffering. The portrait of suffering. Matthew notes that this is, these events that we read are taking place as they were coming out. They're coming out here, as you remember, from the praetorium where they had taken Jesus and the soldiers surrounded him, the cohort of soldiers, possibly up to 600 soldiers mocking him, abusing him, shaming him. Now that they've finished with all that they can do, they leave the praetorian and they're coming out and they're headed to the place of the crucifixion. He is surrounded by crowds mixed with those, some who are sympathetic to him, most who are not sympathetic to him, many of whom were just crying out for his blood. And among the crowds, there is a man named Simon who is from Cyrene. Cyrene is simply a region in northern Africa. Simon, there's no special connection there. Some want to make a connection between the events of Simon and that of Peter, but there's not. It's simply a common name, a common Jewish name. He's there probably for the Passover week, caught up in the crowd as a bystander watching the events. But he's singled out by these Roman soldiers and he is pressed into service. Pressed into service to help Christ carry the cross. That idea of being pressed into service, really picks up on what Jesus was talking about back in Matthew 5, 41. If someone forces with you to go one mile, you go with him too. It was a custom that predates the Romans in which a government official could press someone into service to carry out their government business. It was often like every other privilege they had, abused. And so it had a primarily pejorative sense, a negative sense to it because it was used rather for selfish ends very often. But here then, the soldiers are using that right, and they call out a man named Simon of Cyrene, and they compel him to help Jesus carry his cross. Now, it was customary that the condemned criminal would be required to carry the instrument of their death to the place of crucifixion. Now, sometimes the prisoner was required to carry the entire cross, which could weigh easily in excess of 200 pounds. In this case, most likely, he's carrying only the cross beam, the part that he would be crucified with. I'm not entirely sure which it was, but that's the way that I would understand it. It's the one that he later would be attached to by nails. His arms would be attached to, and he would be hanging on the cross. Sometimes the flogging that was before the actual event of crucifixion, even continued as they went along the way to the place of execution. Again, the gospel writers don't record that to us here, but knowing the kind of severity and mocking that he'd already experienced, it's no doubt that he maybe was, even as he was trying to make his way to the place of execution, still being whipped and kicked and beaten by the Roman soldiers. In any case... The point here is simply to note that 
His body was so weakened by everything that he endured that he had not even the strength to carry his cross, not even the strength to drag it to the place of execution. And so Simon is called out. Simon is called out, a man, to help him in his weakness. And it's a weakness, I would just note here, that's pretty amazing in light of Christ. He was a man without sin. His human strength and his human constitution would have been far above any of a normal man. What he would have been able to endure would have far exceeded anybody else. But here, he had been taken so completely to the limits of human endurance that he needs the help of this man named Simon to carry the cross. Now, it's unclear whether Simon is a believer or not. Later, tradition asserts that he is. He was a believer. Mark 15, 21 mentions two of his sons, Alexander and Rufus, which implies that they were known to the early church and very possible believers in Christ. Rufus may even be mentioned at the end of Romans in verse 33 of chapter 16. But again, here the mention of his name is simply to show that he was one who needed to help the Son of God bear his cross to the place of execution. Jesus at this point would again have been so beaten and so swollen from the things that he's endured that he would have been hardly recognizable. And yet, even in that state, Jesus shows that he's in command completely of the situation, knows fully what he is doing as he bears the cross, and knows fully the implications of it for the nation. As a matter of fact, in Luke 23, let me just read it. Luke records for us something that Matthew chooses to leave out. He says this, that when they were leading him away and Simon was carrying the cross, as that was going on, Jesus turning to the crowds of women who were mourning and lamenting him, so these would have been the believing among the crowds, Jesus turning to them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? He's referring here ultimately to the destruction that is going to come upon Jerusalem in just less than 40 years. His point is essentially this. If they're going to do this to an innocent man in broad daylight before all to see, what are they going to do to a sinful nation on whom God has brought his judgment? It's going to be worse in some ways. As a matter of fact, it's probably one part of this. Josephus records not only all the destruction of starvation and other things that were part of the Jewish revolt and their destruction by the Roman army in 70 AD. But there was one striking example as the Roman soldiers were taking some of those Jews that were trying to escape and they would take them and they would crucify them. A striking, a striking portrait he gives us here of the cruelty of these Romans who were playing games and they would take these Jews trying to escape and they would crucify them in all different kind of positions, whatever way they could think of and imagine to make a mockery of them and to warn others of the Roman power. In either case, Jesus is here making his way to bear that same 
suffering in verse 33 tells us that when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, place of a skull, this is where he would finally be executed. The place of a skull refers either to a geographical shape of the area, in other words, where it was, it was a place that looked like a skull, or it could refer to the place of execution, therefore identifying that that's where people died. You can't be exactly sure what he's referring to here. This place of the skull, however, however, is where we get our term Calvary. Calvary is actually from the Latin term. It's a Latin term for skull. And so when we say the cross of Calvary, what we're saying is the place of the skull. This is where Christ was crucified for us. It's suggested that now the place where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is in Israel is probably a pretty accurate location of where this was. However, the most important point to recognize about this place is this. That it was a place that was chosen for all to see. An important aspect of crucifixion is that it was public. So John 19.20 reminds to us that it was near the city. Again, crucifixion was designed to cause horror in the sight of those who saw it so they would not commit crimes against Rome. Now, what happened once he was there? What happened once he was at the place of the skull at Golgotha? Well, once he was at the place of execution, Jesus would have been laid on the long beam. If he was carrying the whole cross, then, it, of course, he would have, they would have laid that flat on the ground. But if the long beam was there, that later they would attach the, the cross beam. In either case, he would have been laid on the long beam to begin the process of affixing him to the cross. Although sometimes the victim was tied to the cross with ropes, they were also often affixed with nails. Now, interestingly, the gospel writers in describing the crucifixion don't give us that detail of whether it was by nails or whether it was by ropes. However, John provides for us the certainty that he was, in fact, nailed to the cross. If you'll remember the words of Thomas, after he had been told about the resurrection of Christ, he said this, "...unless I see his hands..." And the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Later, Jesus tells him to reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. So, in fact, Jesus was nailed to the cross, which again was, of all of the options they had, the most horrific that they could have chosen. And they chose it for him. Once he was laid on the long beams, his, leg would have been, his legs would have been crossed to rest on top of each other. And then a large iron spike, about nearly half a foot long, about 5.5 inches, was positioned just above where the feet and the shin come together and driven through with a large mallet. It's also possible that his feet were somewhat separated just because of the length of nail it would have taken to go through them stacked on top of each other. But in either case, whether it was one or two for each foot, it was driven through his, his body to keep him affixed to the cross. Beneath the feet, sometimes a plank was placed for the crucified victim to rest some of their body weight so that they could push up as they were trying and struggling to breathe. 
Sometimes this plank was actually put in the midsection where their buttocks is so that they could again find support and push up as they struggled to, believe, to breathe. Usually the victim died by asphyxiation, by suffocation, by the inability to get oxygen into their lungs. And so they would struggle for a large part of their time just trying to get air. It was excruciating pain. Once his feet were affixed to the long beam, his arms would then be stretched out either one at a time or both together. And when fully extended, a large spike would be driven into the area just above the wrist. As a matter of fact, one argues that the term there that's translated ham could actually refer to the arm. And one of the problems with the hands, unless they were also tied, is the fact that it would, with the weight, rip through the flesh. There's not enough bone there to support the weight. And so it would have been somewhere probably in the wrist or even possibly up further up the arm. In either case, these nails were then inserted in, through his flesh to keep him affixed to the cross. Once attached to the cross, the end of the long beam would then be placed in a tightly dug hole and hoisted up with a jarring motion, which would have caused the nailed limbs to pull against the wound and increase the pain. Once erected, the cross would stand probably somewhere between 7 to 10 feet high. So it wasn't super high, but it was certainly high enough to stand out among the crowds and on the side of the road to be seen. Now the physical suffering of the crucifixion is really beyond what we can fully grasp and is frankly difficult to think about. But since we are not familiar with it, let's consider the following descriptions. And these are somewhat extended, but just listen along with me. A death by crucifixion seems to include all that pain and death can have of the horrible and ghastly dizziness, cramp, thirst, starvation, sleeplessness, traumatic fever, shame, publicity of shame, long continuance of torment. As a matter of fact, one writer suggested that usually they were not on the cross for less than 36 hours before they died. Horror of anticipation, mortification of intended wounds, all intensified just up to the point at which they can be endured at all, but all stopping just short of the point at which would give to the sufferer the relief of unconsciousness. The unnatural position made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds inflamed by exposure gradually gangrene when the victim took several days to die. The arteries, especially at the head and stomach, became swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pain of a burning and raging thirst. And all the physical complications caused an internal excitement and anxiety, which made the prospect of death itself, of death the unknown enemy and at whose approach man usually shudders most, bear the aspect of a delicious and exquisite release. One thing is clear, the first century executions were not like the modern ones, for they did not seek a quick, painless death, nor the preservation of any measure of dignity for the criminal. On the contrary, they sought an agonizing torture which completely humiliated him. In a medical journal entitled Arizona Medical, one by the name of Dr. Truman Davis gives these words. At this point, another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigued, great waves of cramps seep over each muscle, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed, and the intercostal muscles, that is, muscles between the ribs, are unable to act. 
air can be drawn into the lungs but cannot be excelled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partly subside. Spasmodically, he's able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. Later, he says, an hour of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, rending cramps, gut-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep cursing pain in the chest as the pericardium, that's membrane surrounding the heart, slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It's now almost over. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp and small gulps of air. So these are some descriptions, and even these aren't complete, of the kind of suffering could be added to this the inability of the person on the cross to brush away flies and other insects that would have gathered around their body. Or even sometimes while the victim was still alive, maybe coming in and out of consciousness, birds, carrion birds that would come and begin to eat the flesh of the victim while they were on the cross. It was absolutely terrible and excruciating. And there may be in those descriptions and in the reality of the cross itself an echo of the description of suffering in Psalm 22. When David the writer says this, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint, which would have been a common consequence of being on the cross. I am, it, my heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. Significant thirst. And you lay me in the dust of death. Now, in light of all of this suffering, it is interesting that none of the gospel writers actually emphasizes the physical aspect of the crucifixion. And there could be several reasons for that. One reason that I think is probably one of the primary ones is this, is the fact that they were well familiar with it. They didn't need to dwell on those details. The mere word of cross or crucifixion would have conjured up all of this imagery in the first century mind. It was not uncommon for them to see this and to know the horrors, the physical horrors of crucifixion. However, there is another and more important reason than that. And that's this. The focus is not so much on the details of the physical suffering, but what? It's the one who was there. That's the significant point. That's the significant point. It is the fact that it was the Son of God who was on this cross and enduring those things. That's the testimony that Matthew has been bearing throughout. It's the testimony Christ gave when he was before the false trial of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, that he is the Son of God. It is the testimony that Jesus gave to Pilate. It is the testimony that Matthew will emphasize in verse 4 from the lips of the Roman soldier that truly he is the Son of God. In fact, many suffered crucifixion as we noted. There was nothing unusual particularly about the crucifixion. Yes, it had elements that were maybe more cruel than they did to everybody else. Yes, they may have used every means of suffering that they didn't always do. But many were crucified. Many men were crucified. And in fact... Many innocent people throughout its history were crucified. 
So it's not the fact simply that he's innocent. It's not the fact simply that there was great pain associated with the crucifixion. It is the fact that the one who is there being crucified is the eternal sinless son of God. That's the issue. And because it is the eternal and sinless son of God, he is the one alone who through his suffering can provide an atonement for the sin of his people. That's the significance of the cross. This is what the prophet looked forward to. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. As a result of the anguish of the soul, he, the Father, will see it and be satisfied. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He would pour out himself unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. That's the issue. That's the issue. This is the Son of God on that cross. This is the Eternal One who spoke the worlds into existence, who gave himself up to suffer such dishonor. And so it is a picture then of perfect obedience. Look at verse 34. Highlights this. Pastor Ted brought this out in a sermon not too long ago. Look at verse 34. They gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. He was unwilling to drink. In fact, this was in some ways a mercy of the Romans, although some say that it wasn't necessarily their intention to show mercy. It was really rather just to keep them from fighting against the cross. In either case, the effect of this drink, which one writer describes the gall as the bitter yellowish liquid secreted by the liver and stored in the gall bladder. The idea of here it was very bitter. The idea of this drink was really, or the effect of it, was to alleviate some of the pain of the one crucified. As a matter of fact, even Scripture acknowledges this in Proverbs 31, 6. Listen to what he says. He's Speaking here of the effects of alcohol, he says, Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to him whose life is bitter. In other words, it was a mercy. Even God recognized that there was a a mercy of the alleviation that could come through some strong drink like this. Mark refers to it as myrrh. Myrrh. Some suggest either that they're emphasizing maybe different elements that were in this drink. The myrrh emphasizes the mercy because it's a pain-deadening element. The gall emphasizes the bitterness. In either case, the point here is that Jesus refused to drink it. After tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. Why? Why was he unwilling to drink it? Because he needed to suffer. He embraced it all the way. One writer says this, John Noland He says the refusal can only be a statement about his commitment, listen, to drain to the dregs the cup that is his father's will for him to drink. That's a good statement. He had to experience the suffering of the cross down to its fullness. And probably as much as anywhere, his complete submission to the will of the father is shown in that very verse. Not simply only that he gave himself up, but he gave himself up so completely that he was un.
willing in any way, shape, or form to lessen what the Father had ordained for him to suffer as a sacrifice for sin. His obedience then was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. And when you think of that, Paul's words have more of a punch. It says in verse 8 of Philippians 2, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we could add to that to experience everything that death on a cross meant for him as the Son of God. Notice verse 35, and notice a prophetic testimony. Look at what he says. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. Verse 36, and sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. Begin to keep watch over him there. Now, why is this prophetic fulfillment? Well, actually, Matthew just gives us this detail. In John, he cites the same words from Psalm 22 and mentions it as a fulfillment of those words. The giving of the gall was as well prophesied in the Psalms. In Psalm 69, 21, he says, They gave me gall to drink. David is there speaking. Here is the son, the greater son of David, who's fulfilling that ultimately in his own life and in his own suffering. In Psalm 69 as well, in Psalm 22, the idea is this. The idea is of the righteous suffering at the hands of the wicked. What David provided, in a sense, was a type of what his son, the truly righteous one, would suffer ultimately as a sacrifice. And so here the actions of the soldiers fulfill the picture of Psalm 22:18, where David says this, that they divided up his garments. They divided up his garments among them. Let me read that to you. He says, I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divided my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Anticipating what is going on here. Now, it was customary for the criminal who was crucified to be crucified completely in the nude. So he was completely naked. A criminal was usually completely naked. Now, again, it's not certain 100% whether Jesus was completely nude on the cross or whether he was allowed to have some kind of loin covering because of sensitivities to the Jews. Although, clearly, as we see throughout the account, there was no concern for the sensitivity of the Jews, and in all likelihood, he was crucified completely naked. So nothing to cover his shame. And of course, the point of that was to make it as shameful an experience as possible. To degrade the criminal as much as it was possible to do. And nothing was more shameful, not only than the crucifixion, but to be crucified completely exposed for all to see. And this is, this is striking on a lot of levels. Let me read to you one reason why. In Revelation 3.18, he says this, the risen Christ. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, listen, and that the shame of your nakedness 
will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He says the same thing in chapter 16. He says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. And blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Why is that significant? Well, for this reason. Again, Christ gave himself over to bear the fullest possible shame, our shame for our transgressions and our sin, so that through his bearing our shame, he might cover us with his righteousness and we would not have to be ashamed. Do you see? This is the exchange. This is the mercy. It's our shame that we should be suffering and Christ is bearing it for us. And he offers to those who trust in him to be covered so that they would not be found naked. But that's only because he's here, crucified naked on a cross, hung for all the world to see. And this is even more striking when you remember that Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this generation, I will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. Repentance and faith in Christ is willing to bear that same shame for his name, which he bore to make us his own, to give us his name. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He bore our shame so that we wouldn't have to. And we go, in a sense, and bear his shame in the world in the proclamation of the gospel and our identification with him. But he went first. Look at verse 37, and I'm going to look at these quickly. His further part, part of his shame, and really has a prophetic element too. It says, And above his head they put up the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. This is King Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, the word that's used here is not the, the word for a technical charge. Really, it's just put there by Herod, and this wasn't uncommon, to give the reason for his crucifixion and for his death. In this case, as a means of mockery and derision, he puts that this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, this also, incidentally, tells us probably what kind of cross. There were different kinds of cross, some that were in an X shape, some that just looked like a T, and some that looked like the one behind me, which was probably the one it was because there needed to be a space above his head protruding for them to nail this charge. Sometimes it was hung around their necks, but it was here stated that it was put above his head, and so it was nailed there. John reminds us that it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, John nineteen twenty, so that all who could read it. But the point is here is that Pilate puts this up because it is an offensive charge against the Jews. It was an ultimate mockery of the nation and of the leaders. And he knew already, we've looked at, that they delivered him up because of envy. And so he knew even more it would just stir up within them and provoke within them a disgust and a hatred. And so he did it to toy with them, as it were, to mock them and to mock Jesus whom he clearly disregarded his claims, though he was momentarily afraid. He disregarded him, gave him over, though he knew he was innocent, though he knew he claimed to be the Son of God. So for both Pilate and the Jews, they saw him merely as 
a condemned man, a blasphemer, a threat, a joke. They saw through the eyes of unbelief. They didn't see, of course, what Paul would later describe as the Lord of glory. And so here he is, the king of the Jews. This incredible, incredible irony here meant to shock. This idea here of the imagery, however, of the charge against Jesus is picked up on by Paul. Now he uses a different word, but he's using the same general idea here when he says in Colossians 2.14, when he says, having canceled out, speaking of Jesus canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So this imagery of this charge against Jesus, here put up by Pilate as a mockery against the Jews and against Jesus himself, Paul takes that and borrows from it and says, we who have trusted in Christ can put another charge against the head of Jesus above it, Namely, the charge of our transgressions, of our sin, of our law-breaking. To say that that charge against us is here being paid in full by Christ himself. By Christ himself. And in this last verse, look at verse 38. Continues, and at that time two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Here fulfilling the prophecy by Isaiah that he was numbered with the transgressors, counted here as a criminal. And this is striking. I want you to notice one other thing. The imagery here is striking for another reason. These two robbers who were crucified with him, he says at the end, one on the right and one on the left. Does that remind you of anything? Does that remind you of James and John? When they went to Christ before the cross, going through their mother, actually, who Matthew records, actually spoke these words. And she said in verse 21, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. Hey, that was a pretty desirable position to be in when they didn't have the cross in view. When the kingdom of God was to them only a means of power, only a means of honor, only a means of prestige, to be on the right and to be on the left of Jesus was desirable. It was desirable. And I would say it's easy to maybe pick on the gospel that's out there, but let me make it a little more personal and say to you, when you think of being owned by Christ and being identified with Christ, is it the Christ who will bring you ease and honor? Or is it the Christ who was here on the cross that you most trust in? Because this is what his disciples are ultimately called to as well. As a matter of fact, Jesus told that to them. He said this. He said, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said, we are able. And he said to them, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left... This is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And he later said this, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, he says, look, if you want to follow me, 
if you want to sit on my right and my left, that's not merely a commitment of prestige and honor. It is a commitment to say, I'm willing to die with you. I'm willing to die with you. Christ, as he repeatedly told his disciples and he tells us, reminds that the call to faith in him is a call to forgiveness, redemption, hope, future glory. It's also a call to die. It's also a call to die. Die to ourselves to embrace him. That's the one that we are embracing. That's the call of saving faith. To sit on his right and on his left in glory, we have to first say we're willing to sit on his right and his left at the cross in terms of exchanging our life for his. One says this, those of us who value our dignity too much to live with unjust criticisms and the world's hatred must seek a different Messiah to follow. Right? That's what we covered last week. Pastor Ted in Matthew 5. When we assign on to follow Christ, we're trusting the one who went there in our place, but we're also saying that I embrace every part of him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ bids a man to come, he bids him to come and die. And in the words of Jesus, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall keep it to life eternal. And so this then is the entrance, the beginning of the presentation of the cross. It is a, an instrument of shame. It is a place where Jesus exposed fully before the world as a condemned criminal was in fact condemned not for his sin but for ours. And the shame that he bore for us, for our salvation, is at the same time the essence of the call to faith to say, do we embrace him not only as a savior, but the one of whose words and whose person we will not be ashamed to identify with and proclaim in this world. So I, I hope that your faith is in fact that kind of faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll look next week at unbelief, how unbelief views the cross of Christ. Let's go ahead and pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. How can we fathom what our redemption has cost? How can we know in its fullness? We see it on the pages of Scripture, but we need you by the Spirit to unfold to us the true glory of Christ, the one who stood there in our place, the one condemned for us, the one who was hung naked in shame so that we would not be found naked, so that we, covered by your righteousness, O Christ, covered and redeemed through your death and your resurrection, might know the freedom of the sons of God, of being the sons of God and the children of God. I pray that we would revel and delight and worship you for our redemption, and I ask that for those here who don't know you, maybe yet haven't committed their life to you, that, that today would be that day, that they would see the terrible consequences of sin, 
the glory of your grace and redemption and might lay their life down before you today in faith. And we pray these things in your matchless name. Amen.